Hey, Dolph fans, Seth Levitt here. As you're well aware, 2022 marks the 50th anniversary of the undefeated 1972 Miami Dolphins' perfect season. And while we hope you are reliving those amazing memories or learning about that one-of-a-kind team through our network's Perfect Season podcast, OJ and I want to be sure that we do our part as well. With that, we decided to bring back one of our all-time favorite episodes originally published on January 14th, 2020. OJ had booked an interview with Larry Little, and we were pretty geeked to sit down with the Hall of Fame guard. And Larry indeed showed up for the interview, but he wasn't alone. Juice and I were shocked to see Larry Zonka and Mercury Morris enter the room as well, and immediately we called an audible, and we got to work. And at the risk of sounding cliche and perhaps a little bit corny, the experience was indeed perfect. So if you've heard this one before, we are confident that just like the 72 Dolphins, this episode withstands the test of time so you can listen to it again. And if you're hearing it for the first time, you are definitely in for a treat. All right, you've heard enough from me. Let's dive in. You're now diving into the fish tank. Sitting down with Seth Living, OJ, Juice, man, this is strictly for them true fans, golf fans, number one, of course y'all, this ain't no ordinary sports talk, I'm up in that fish tank. Welcome back to the Fish Tank. Seth Levitt here with OJ McDuffie. Juice, we have just kind of an unexpected treat here today. What a trio we have right here, Big Seth. I mean, you got to think about this, man. How often do you get three legends from the Miami Dolphins in the building at the same time recording a podcast with your boys? It doesn't happen, and I don't know who booked it, but I'll give you the credit. So, you know, we knew Larry Little was coming in. Larry had committed, and we were talking to Larry Ball, and I turn around, and oh, shit, there's, there's Zonka, and there's Merck. We might have all three guys. So, gentlemen, welcome to the Fish Tank. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Good, baby. Good. Good to be here. Great being here. So, guys, I know it's a big weekend for you guys coming in, uh, celebrating this, the, the most amazing football team, obviously, in NFL history, the 72 team. How's it been so far with you guys getting back and, for real, shooting the shit with each other like you like old times? Well, we do this about every five years, man. So, for our, our own inner circle, collectively, this is something that we kind of look forward to getting together every five years and really kind of reminiscing and, and doing the things that uh, keeping up and seeing who else is getting older and older and older and older and older. But we're still here. Thank God you guys are still here, and we love celebrating it. So we were just talking to Larry Ball, and we had Sipe on before and Kick, and, you know, Larry was talking about, and he said, I hate to quote, <laughs> I hate to quote Merck. He said, but, you know, somebody may, maybe somebody will figure it out and go undefeated, but they'll they'll just have accomplished something. They won't have done what you guys did. You guys did something that, that has yet to be duplicated and from your perspective it doesn't matter what they do they can't they can't truly duplicate what you guys accomplished no doubt because uh, we were the first to do it and we've been on top of this mountain by ourselves for a long time so if someone want to come up they can join us but they cannot surpass that's right. us that's right that's right let's, let's go back in, in time a little bit let's talk uh zonk you you know you're from, you're an ohio cat like myself you grew up i believe in Stowe, ohio i tried to try to grow up <laughs> <laughs> and we always talk about guys like us that come from the midwest and ended up playing down in south florida how was that transition from being a you know an ohioan and then coming down and playing down here in south florida hot yeah that was a big was thing real hot yeah i I thought I knew the definition of hot, but I knew the definition of warm. Right. I thought I knew the definition of cold growing up in northeast Ohio, but I found out when I played ball at Syracuse that there was a new definition of cold. (laughs) (laughs) 
particularly hitchhiking on Interstate 90 past Buffalo. So my world was an expanding world at the ripe old age of 20 years. Yeah, it was a snow belt up there, right, in Syracuse? Yeah, a lot of snow up there. And there was a, there was a sun belt down here. So, <laughs> and the sun belt wasn't too bad because our head coach then was named George Wilson, and he was at the end of his career. He had a very illustrious career, but he'd come down and formed the expansion team and coached the expansion team down here. And they had a pretty relaxed attitude about it. I mean, think about it. you got brand-new team coming into a league, not much expected. So George, quite frankly, lived up to that part. He just said, you know, if it's too hot, we'll, just, we'll take a deal. We'll go by the – you guys remember. Oh, yeah. George would line us all up and say it's 94 degrees it, – Take your shoulder pads off and Go throw them jump in the pool. That's right. That's right. And march us to the pool, and we'd all have a pool party. <laughs> then we met this guy named Shula. <laughs> he had a different perspective of all that. We were getting quite used to the pool routine. We're kind of enjoying it. And then he came down, and the proverbial crap hit the fan. And uh, things went just as far the other direction, which a lot of us, me included, objected to and, and bucked the system, quite frankly. But then we started to win. And when we started to win, the bitching started settling down. Because when you start to win, it's a, it's a special kind of elixir. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. I see it in your eyes. You know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. When you start to win, you start to feed on that. And then the, the camaraderie, you start to think about what else can we win? How else can we beat these guys? And we started really getting into it. Now, that's not to suggest that we still didn't bitch about Chula. We did, <laughs> because he was way over the top. You know, he was overkill. <laughs> he he told us, and if I'm lying, you guys jump in here and straighten me out. He told us, we have two ways of looking at this heat thing down here. We can either use it as a negative and hide from it, like everybody else does, or we can use it to our advantage and make it a liability, an asset. So if we learn how to practice for two and a half hours without any water in 94-degree heat, <laughs> then we can become camel-like during the game. And when people come down here from other places, we'll see in the fourth quarter who has their heads up and who's down. And that literally came to pass. And like I said, correct me You're if right. I'm wrong. You're right. But when he said that, who was buying in? We all bought in. I yeah, think but we, chicken passed in. out. <laughs> Yeah, I but not out. really. I faked the pass out on him. Yeah, you were I captain said, of the team, and I we're told, all counting on him to bail us I out. I told my roommate the night before I passed out, I'm not going to let the son of a bitch kill me. <laughs> oh, but, but, Larry, you're from this area, so I'm you should be used to this shit. I'm you should have been used to the heat, the yeah. atmosphere, the you know the, the humidity. You should have been used to it going to Booker T. He was at San Diego and came here. <laughs> San Diego's a pretty relaxed place to be, and then he came here and was under George Wilson for a year. So we were both relaxed and ready. All of a sudden, this guy from Mars comes in here and starts killing us. Uh, the night before, I uh, literally passed out, as they say. I say you did. <laughs> I told my roommate, like I said earlier, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let the son of a bitch kill me. So I, I timed it. And uh, around an hour and a half into practice, I started reeling a little, reeling. And all of a sudden, I hit the ground. Lundy and the other trainers ran over to me. And I point, they put me in the big old, remember that old station wagon we had out there? <laughs> Is that like the ambulance? Is that like the transport? They put, me, yeah. <laughs> they put me in that uh, uh, big red uh, Chevrolet, took me into the locker room, started packing me in ice. <laughs> and I said, oh, shit. <laughs> I got to think of plan B now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's not the route you wanted to go, is it? That's 
I jumped up like I was You're too good of an actor, apparently. I thought to have hallucinations then. <laughs> <laughs> and I missed, see, we were going four times a day, too, now. They still thought you were suffering from heat stroke, yeah, but it was really exactly. the ice that was giving yeah, you the hallucinations. Four times a day in practice. That's four days. Four, four practices a day. Not right. all wearing pads, but just mentally, you know, being out there on that field. So they sent me to this doctor. They can find anything wrong. They sent me to another doctor. They can find anything wrong. So they finally sent me to an internist. The doctor said, Larry, I've been through you all up and above. I don't see a damn thing wrong with you. I said, well, doc, you've got to find something. He said, well, you do have a slight sinus problem. I said, well, put that on there. Well, that was, that was my, that's a true story. Oh, my goodness. Oh, he was our captain, and he was trying something to save us from the, you know, one of us really dying. And he sacrificed himself a little bit, but he, you know, he had, where he wasn't, nobody's going to trade him at that point. Right, you know, right. Rock solid. But, you know, and then later into the season, when we had some, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, we had some plus 85 degree days in like uh, October and you have a team like the 49ers or someone like that come in here and they're not used to that above 85 and we weaned on it so we're we you know right in the fourth quarter you look over there you know the offensive units stand out on the field and we're looking over there and you can see there are two defensive tackles down on the knee and one defensive end. Well, where Tobacco gonna... coming out of his mouth, slobbing <laughs> out of his mouth. Where, in the front. where are you going to Where are you going to go with the ball? You're going to go right at those guys that are hanging their heads, right? Right. And it became the asset that Shula talked about. He was right, and it was a good thing because none of us died in the end. Yeah, and Merck, you growing up in, in Pittsburgh, I mean, you had to realize the difference too, you know, being a kid from the, you know, the Western Pennsylvania area, coming down here and dealing with the heat. I mean, you, you bought in at one point as well, right? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh, but I, I went to school in Texas. Right, West Texas. So, in the high plains mm-hmm. of Texas. So it, we didn't experience too much cold down. It got cold, but not, and, and no snow or anything like that. So when I came down here, I mean, it was ridiculously hot. I I had a different perspective because I got hurt the first night of practice. Uh, I got a knee in the thigh by a guy named Dale McCullers in Shula's first year because the strike, well, there was a two-week strike when the, the, the merger, during the merger of the AFC and the NFC, uh, which it became from the NFL in the NFL. And that, that merger produced a two-week strike. And then the end of the strike, it was in the evening. And he made us practice that evening. Uh, and it was dark. And we were literally out there in the dark with no lights. And McCullers hits me in the knee and nails me. And I go in the, in the meeting. And uh, I, next thing I know, my, my, my thigh is tightening up and tightening up. And next thing I know, I start sweating. And then, then the tears start coming out of my eyes. And Dr. Virgin, whom I'm sure was the model from uh, – <laughs> Look at the reaction the, from the other guys This here. guy, Virgin, man, of uh, the island of Dr. Moreau. And, and, this, and this guy, he looks at me. He goes, oh, you'll be all right in a day and a half. So the next morning I was in surgery. And uh, I was out for four months, three and a half months, and I watched these guys go through, literally through all of that. And keep in mind, Shula came with the idea and let people know that nobody's going to make this team. Uh, that if you've made it already, you're going to make it out of what you do now. So everybody was was trying to make the team at that time. But it, the practices were so that I watched these guys go out, and they were so hard and long and monotonous and fast people hated to go to sleep at night because they knew when they woke up 
that they were going to go right back over to that field. It wasn't like it is now where these guys go home. I mean, we were there for six weeks, and it was like a regiment boot camp that they were there. And, and, and these, to this day, these guys says, man, you guys man, remember those four days we went through? I said, fortunately, no, I don't, because <laughs> I was in surgery, and I was hurt the whole time. We'll be back in a day and a half, right? <laughs> Dr. Virgin four said. months it took me. That's wild. Yeah, that's but. wild. So you were talking about how difficult the practices were in the heat, and uh, I, I love that Zonk said Coach Shula was like a man from Mars here compared to what you guys were used to. But uh, we had another buddy of yours in the tank here recently, uh, Jim Kick. And uh, Jim could not stop talking about the 12-minute run. <laughs> and I know you guys were talking about it a little bit before you jumped on the show here. So where does the 12-minute run fit? In, in all of this part of the conversation here? I, for me, it, it was just a matter of trying to make it. Dick Anderson was the, the guy who was – he would be the premier guy that would run that 12-minute run. He would always come in first, and uh, Larry would always try to pass out. Uh, <laughs> through it. And, I mean, he did it like clockwork. It wasn't like, you know, uh, it was a, a happenstance thing. He did it like clockwork every year. And then, then they, he would go out, and they try to make it – because you don't just you get – well, you didn't make it. You had to go out and run it the next day. It was the plan right. behind yes. what I did. So right. then he had Junior, this uh, other guy who was a, a combination half a equipment man and had worked with, partly with uh, Bob Lundy. He'd go have Junior go out there with him, and Larry would go out there and intimidate Junior. All right, now, Junior, now, I ain't going to run but three laps, but you're going to tell him that I I never said I ain't, and I said I'm not. Oh, First oh, all, oh you know what? Shit. You have the nerve to cor- yeah. correct me. Oh, yeah, don't say what I ain't. Never, I don't use ain't. Hold it. Okay, don't okay. make me tell that story about no, don't you about tell there. shit. <laughs> See, no. Please tell it, Mert. Okay, <laughs> now, we're out at the uh, the casino out there with the uh, and Mikasuki. And Chicken was working with me, and I had this, we had this Ed Sullivan, I mean, I mean, had this Johnny Carson, Ed McMahon thing going. And so we would go up, and during a halftime, I mean, during the commercials, we'd give stuff away. And so one day, I, I told him, I said, okay, Chicken, never mind, you, you stay back, I'll go up. So we had two mics up there. So I said, uh, okay, I'm going to read the numbers. And then I stepped to the next mic and I said, no, I'm going to read the numbers. <laughs> and, then, and then I stepped back to the next mic and says, no, man. I said, I'm going to read the numbers. And I said, he said, hey, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm going to read the numbers. I said, okay, read the numbers. All right, 27046, who got it? I said, nope, you, you got it. Okay, all right, here it is. I get back to the table. He goes, hey, son of a bitch. <laughs> I don't never say with you. I say with you. You start that man tan mullet shit in front of these white folks, and I'm going to kick your ass. And I go, Larry, you should hear yourself. <laughs> now, tell me that didn't happen. It didn't happen. It was a lying <laughs> And, you know, and that's that's interesting point right there. Because, I, mean, I mean, you guys came down here in an interesting time in history. You talk about the, the early 70s and, you know, South Florida wasn't the, the easiest place for, for men of color, I'm sure. You know, so I'm not sure of the, any situations you guys had to uh, run into down here. I know what my mom went through in Ohio at that point, but it had to be an interesting situation for you guys down here. Let me field this. when Because this is all is involved in this. Well, now, uh, previously in the locker rooms, they had Brill Cream, Wild Root, and Vitalis. 
as what you would put on your hair right. as, as <laughs> hair stuff. So in the 1970s, Song tells me that he's walking back from lunch with Shula, and he says, uh, Shula says, Zonk says, uh, hey, listen, uh, well, no, how do the black ball players feel? I got some, I got some Afro sheen and some Afro picks, <laughs> some Afro combs. And how do they feel? And Zonk says, how do I know? I'm a hunky just like you. You have to go ask Merck or somebody like that. Huh? But Don put forth the effort. Yeah. Because we had segregated rooming with George Wilson. And the first thing Shula did when he got here is put Paul Warfield with Bob Greasy to signal that those days were over. Nice. And, we and had me be Cooch. You and Cooch? Yeah. Which was a bad idea. <laughs> Why is that, Larry? Cooch snored like hell. And I smoked. He can stand smoke and I can stand snoring. That's a hell of a combination. <laughs> they broke that shit up in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, how long did that last? About a week. <laughs> About a week. And who'd you room with, Zonk? Who were you with? Kick. Kick. You and Kick? I was, yeah, room with Jimmy the, the whole time. And when I came back uh, in 79, the last year I would play, I came back and uh, I think I roomed with Cooch. Yeah. That year. I thought it was Delvin. Oh, I ended up with Delvin. Well, I, well, I started with Delvin. Okay. And then Delvin left, <laughs> disappeared. <laughs> and uh, I ended up with Cooch, I think, because uh, somebody, whoever Coochenberg's roommate was, got hurt. Langer. Langer was yeah. Coochenberg. He had gone. So I ended up with Cooch. Yeah. Exactly. Which is a real treat when you room with Cooch. There <laughs> exactly how many times did you and Kick sneak out back in the early days there? Murky would stand better advised to ask us how many times we stayed. <laughs> A little easier to keep track of. Plenty of stories in the world. When we first got to camp, everybody was so scared of Shula because he, you know, cut you over anything. You know, right. you hiccup, a fart, and I'm eating, you're gone. <laughs> yep. And uh, some of us, you know, when you think about being gone, what did that really? Everybody wanted to stay because you didn't. You feared maybe not, you know, having to go back and actually start working a nine to five job somewhere <laughs> and getting out of sports. But looking at it now, you realize you know you might have had a little more clout than what we realized we had. But Kick and I just uh, funniest stories when we'd go out, go over the hedge and through the bushes and not park our cars on the other side, disappear. One night we came back and we're both sneaking back and Kick got lost in the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> and I go back to find him. We both scared each other and run the wrong way. <laughs> Run right into a security guard. Uh, we had to get the security guard. And we started out trying to threaten him, and that didn't work. The security guard didn't care. So we ended up having to bribe him. So that's what happened at camp. So now Jim stated when he was on the show that he got blamed for all of it. Now, you guys might have been running together, but he said, no, Zonk never got in trouble, that he got blamed for everything. Now, how much of that is revisionist history, or is he telling the truth there? I'm telling the truth. <laughs> so why was that? Why did you? Why did because Jim? Because I have... could anticipate what Shula was going to do. We're both hunkies. We both grew up in Ohio. I had a lot in common with, with, uh, with Don, and I knew, you know, he was strict Catholic upbringing, and I was not such a strict Catholic upbringing, but Catholic upbringing. And uh, because of that, I could had a little extra sensory awareness of when he was fixing to blow off, you know, Shula was going to fix it. And I would avoid the situation. When we put the alligator in his shower, he first thing he, you know, when he came in, saw that come screaming out of the deal and running into the locker room. I heard him coming. I knew what he was going to do. So I shot into the shower room, and he runs out to the locker where 
me and Keck usually are because he assumes it was us, <laughs> and, uh, which he was half right. <laughs> and he starts screaming at Kick. So Kick did get – he caught the brunt of the thing. Just like right. in a 12-minute run or, you know, the Olympic uh, – you know, f- you can play football if you can run 17 miles. The only, you know, <laughs> when he caught up to Kick, you know, I, I stopped to walk with Kick. Because it was a 12-minute run, get as far as you can, was the way it was right. represented the I day before. We thought of that. In yeah. other words, run as far as you can. If you got to walk, you got to walk. But we're going to measure how far you get. If you don't get at least a mile or mile and a half, whatever it was, then you have to repeat it. Well, I sit, I'm sitting there. I hear walk as far, you know, run as far as you can. So I did. I ran a couple laps around there. And, well, Kix has asthma real bad that time of year. So he stops and starts walking because he literally can't breathe. He's turning blue. So I come running up beside him about the third lap, figure if he's walking, what the hell? I'll just walk with him. <laughs> so I stop and start walking with him. About that time, Shula's on the other side of the field and sees us stop to walk together. And in Shula's words, what are the odds on two guys getting exactly the same side, side, uh, amount of tired at the same time? <laughs> so he comes running across, and I'm on the outside walking, looking past Jim as we're walking, and I can see Shula running all red-faced towards us. So I just start jogging again. <laughs> so he can't catch up to me. And Jim can't. to kick. That, that was always the way. He's trying to breathe. We're walking behind kick like Hitler. You know, he's throwing his hands up and, you know, it's wild. It would be no more walk, run. It would be all run. That's when I got mine in. Now, I knew, talking about the 12-minute run, they knew I wasn't going to make it. Shuler knew I wasn't going to make it when we ran it. And that's when I got Junior the next morning and said, Junior, I'm going to run two laps, not three laps. <laughs> two laps. And uh, then I'm going, I'm, you're going to tell the old man I ran the whole distance. I knew Shuler knew I was making it because he could look from his office to the field. He knows how many times he was going. What, what the hell could he think? As long as he felt power that we had to run it the next morning. If he could care less if I made it or not the next day because he knew what I, what I was going to do on Sunday. Okay. Yeah, so I remember like the running those uh, the twelve minute run is like you passed it and then are like blue marks, right? It was like the exceptional. Like did they have the blue marks back then too, no, where you had the passing. I knew because when I got there, you know, you passed it. Then he tried to show other guys up, like oh, he not only did he pass it, he got to a, a blue mark, which is a, like an extra lap or whatever it might have been. You know, that that created a little problem I think at times with us, where guys <laughs> trying magic. to trying to show other guys up, man. Do your job, do what you're supposed to do, and and, and start the walk with with Larry and Jim. Nicky, Nicky, cared. I could have cared less. <laughs> hey, let's talk about a little bit, man. Of course, we talk about the '72 team a lot, uh, going perfect. Let's go back a couple years. I think '69 for you guys. I believe '68 for you, Larry. I'm not. I mean, Zon. So I think. So you think about those years. How was it then before you guys got to the Super Bowl? You lost, and then the two that you won after that. Um, that was. Um, I mean, it was wasn't as good a team, obviously, as the teams that went on that went perfect. Well, first of all, you, you're talking about two different worlds here. Mm-hmm. Because uh, when the merger came, that's when things changed. But prior to that, it was the old school. Uh, And Wilson was old school. And he did not subscribe to to winning. A typical uh, speech before a game, well, if we get a few breaks, as he's smoking on a cigarette, and the ball bounces our way, we might come out on top. Now go get them. 
And then you had guys out there, Maxie Williams and Billy Neighbors and all these guys who they'd put their cigarettes out at the door <laughs> so just save them before they came in at halftime. And that was uh, my rookie year in 69. So I'm, I'm going, wait a minute, this is pro football right, right here? Right. This is it? I mean, we had a guy uh, named Les Bingman who was a coach – uh, at that time, and and he literally died on on the sideline, and game. Virgin game, yeah. pulled out his uh, his needles and stuck a, a thing in his heart, and and brought and literally brought him back to life. But this is when wow. we were on the side. You know, you talk about the calculation of Don Shula. I only this year saw, and I don't know where it came from. I saw the aspect of the technology that you surely used in order to utilize the fact that when first thing he did when he came was switch us which we were in the sun on the side where the sun is and moved us to the side on the shade where the shade was and then he moved those guys the visiting team over so they'd be in the hot sun the whole time but then he started calculating when would be the hottest part of the day and when i saw this calculation that he did not long ago i saw it from back then i mean it was this intricate concept of how hot it was going to be during the specific times of the games and he would do that in relationship to the kind of plays that he would run the kind of things that we would try to get down i mean it was it was a kind of like a science that he put it to that that but but that's the first thing he did was switch us over so that these guys would be in the heat now you couple that with that poly turf and that stuff was like 120 degrees down there you know that and and to see the science of what he would try to do and you uh, you'd go in the first half you see a quarterback on kneeling and there was an 18 inch crown in the orange bowl so you you literally couldn't see if a guy was kneeling down you didn't see his lower half of his body so you'd see the quarterback kneeling down in the second half with a towel over his head you knew they were toast and then, and that was one of the things that Don was always trying to get on this ring it says the winning edge and that kind of stuff was part of it. Sounds like that calculation that at that about that same time Larry was calculating the pass out. So, so yeah. there was <laughs> a there was a counter calculation. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So uh, also in those early years, I- I'd love to talk about you know each of you had a different path getting to this franchise, and Larry being a first round draft choice, and and Murky also drafted to the team, uh, and, and then well, I said Larry, so Zonk, we'll we'll say Zonk, and then Larry Larry Little, you were you weren't drafted, right? Free no. agent ended up in San Diego. I read somewhere you had a $750 signing bonus. <laughs> they took good care of you to get you out there. And actually, then you get traded here. Actually, my rookie year, I may have made $8,000 because wow. my contract was twelve five. dollars uh, My bonus was $750. Before I got to camp, I was broke. After you take out, I wasn't active the first four games. So you calculate that less. I'm at the state. And federal tax, I think I may, I may have made. Did you owe that money at the end, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, after I was traded, I was traded back home here to Miami uh, for, ironically, my high school teammate. His name was Mac Lamb. And uh, we, we had a certain, I would come home every year during the off season, And we had a certain watering hole where we hung out at during the off season that called a satellite where the Dolphin players would hang out. And I would come home and I would hang out there with them. And uh, I get the news that I've been traded. To, I just sent my plane ticket back to fly back out to San Diego. I just gotten the word that I was coming to Miami. I've been traded to Miami. And Mac walked into the watering hole. And I said, Mac, uh, I've just been traded back to Miami. And Mac said, oh, man, he hadn't gotten the word yet. 
He said, oh, man, BBT makes it again. Huh? Oh, he's getting all excited. <laughs> I said, no, Mac, you were traded for me. <laughs> what was the look on his face at that oh, point? Oh, man, he was shocked. But Mac did not make the team in San Diego. And Sid Gilman, my coach in San Diego, called it a nothing-for-nothing deal. And that was during my time wow. when I first met Zonk at Eaton and Buick. And he, we met each other, and he was still with the uh, Dolphins. I mean, I was still with the Chargers. He was with the Dolphins. We started talking. About two months later, I guess, Zonk, uh, we, uh, I was traded. <laughs> he could tell you the rest 12, of that story. Yeah, Twelve days later, <laughs> <laughs> I left. Uh, I went to Edlin Buick because I had a car that had been damaged, and I had to have it repaired. I had had two or three concussions my rookie year at the Dolphins in uh, Sometimes getting the handoff and getting a defensive player at the same time was, you know, getting to be pretty much the, the, the usual. And the third concussion, I decided, you know, we're going to. So I'm on my way down to Edlin Buick. It's like towards the end of the season, or between, after the 68 season. And I go over to open the door in Edlin Buick, and I'm walking in. And as I open the door, I meet this giant of a fellow walking out. And I said, what's your name? And he said, Larry Little. I said, who do you play for? And he said, San Diego. And I said, why are you here? He said, I live here. He said, why are you here? And then we started talking and we chatted for a while. I left that meeting and went straight down to Biscayne Boulevard where the front office was and went up the elevator to the seventh floor and met with Joe Thomas, the personnel man. And I just told him, I walked in, I said, does the name Larry Little mean anything to you? He said, yeah, he plays for San Diego. We're going to trade him. We're going to try to trade him. I said, you got to get him. He said, why are you so interested in that? I said, for Christ's sake, I can hide behind him. <laughs> he said, well, you don't know how good a blocker. I said, I don't care how good a blocker he is. Look at my head. You know, <laughs> I can hide. He said, we're so many dollars off. I said, take it off mine. Put it on his. I don't care. I said, he wow. said, you do that? I said, we're talking survival, Joe. <laughs> we're not talking about winning record here. We're talking about survival, you know. So that, uh, he said, well, how emphatic are you? I said, oh, I'll tell you what, Joe, we're on the seventh floor. If you've got wings, you've got no fear. <laughs> I said, if, I, if he doesn't come to us and I'm getting hit like that next year, you better learn to fly, son, because you're going out that window. You know? He said, you go that. I said, absolutely. I said, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be necessarily a, a great long-term football coach or talent scout. If you're a running back, and Merck knows what I'm talking about, there's people you meet and you shake hands with them and you're talking to them you think, yeah, you know, speed things will be judged on the field, but you get the drift of where they're coming from. And, uh, you know, it's a feeling you get. And when I stepped in there and saw him, I thought, this has got to be one of my offensive linemen. So I went down and put my two cents in. They did not take anything from mine and put it on his. I didn't have nothing to do with it other than telling Joe Thomas I might kill him. That's <laughs> seventh floor. If he didn't get him, he damn sure better get somebody, you know, because things were bad. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. From a, a nothing for nothing trade, you know, and, and Sid, did Sid call you? Where, where'd you get chicken from? Chicken little. Oh well, let me tell you this story. <laughs> when I was with the Chargers, we were training in a town called Escondido, California. In Escondido, it was hot like Miami. But anyway, only thing we were eating down there was Mexican food. My first night in San Diego, the city of San Diego, they had a fried chicken place called Brady Keys Fried Chicken. Brady Keys was from California, but he played with the Steelers. I ate a whole chicken that night, fried chicken, <laughs> and drank a fifth of Ripple wine. That name hit me in San Diego, and it followed me all the way to Miami. I have never 
been able to shake. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't because of that one box. It was because of the one million boxes that he consumed. I was out in California. Oh, no, we were doing something. We ended up in Las Vegas, and it was kind of cool. And I'm walking in, and I see somebody trying to get in the side door of the hotel, of the Sands Hotel, back when they had those. And I see somebody trying to get in the side of the door. I go, what, what are you doing? He's in a, dressed up in a jean jacket suit you know pants and and jacket with a big bucket of chicken up underneath his arm you know and i go what are you doing with that chicken he said i'm I'm trying to get in door i'm trying to get it oh you're trying to sneak in the side door so you don't have to walk through the lobby with that bucket of chicken man just going around there and open the door for me so i went around and opened the door and it's not like that's the incident Everywhere I've gone with this guy, not long ago, it may have been last year, we went up to uh, Washington and we did something and we, we were there the night before. So he orders like 48 wings, all right? So he only eats 24 of them. Another goddamn lie. <laughs> hey, and so then he, he takes the wings and he puts them away. So we're coming back the next day. Put them away. Right? And I go, what's that I smell? He says, oh, that's my chicken wings. I said, what are you doing with it? I got them on the plane. Wait a minute, the ones from last night? He says, yeah, I'm taking them home. Can't waste these good wings now, Larry. Now, tell them, tell, hey, tell the truth. Tell them you- another goddamn lie. <laughs> this man won't admit to the truth. I love it. How, how many did you eat, Mert? Mm-hmm. How many did I eat? Yeah. Zero. You did. Not one. <laughs> story about I was a health guy. nut. Do you know? He goes to the bathroom oh. 12 times a day. <laughs> you know, guys, guys, 12 we might be times to, a day. Can we get back to the championship? It's <laughs> a different kind of championship. Though. I just rode down here with him in the elevator. I don't even start. <laughs> That's my point. I said, man, let's get to the elevator. I got to go to the room, man. <laughs> oh. All right, we'll try and dial, dial it back a little bit here. So Zonk just told the story of the first time he met Larry, and you were willing to give a little bit of your paycheck to get Larry over here. So four or five years later, you and Jim and Paul Warfield leave for the World Football League, and, and I don't know if one had to do you know revisionist history when I read these articles, but Larry all of a sudden becomes the first $100,000 a year guard in NFL history. So maybe they did give a little bit of yours to his just a few years later. Uh, they didn't give anything <laughs> no. to him. He earned no. everything he, he ever got. He helped my, but what he, he, he helped what my contract, did, no doubt. Was, yep. uh, when we, we signed uh, at this meeting with Mr. Uh, well, that's a long story, but we signed <laughs> with the World Football League. But I knew at that moment that that was going to go national, you know, the next day. And for the most impact, uh, so I, you know, I called a lot of my teammates and said what's going to happen here is you know there's going to be dominoes falling sure the reality of the dollar per player relationship or ratio in the world of professional football had just changed and to understand that even with the, even if you were signed in a contract for another year or two every one of the NFL players particularly the named players had been selected by different world football league mm. and uh that gave you bargaining power for even if you weren't on the on the last year of your contract for future years could be signed for at that time. In other words, even if you were still locked into the particular team you were with for a year or two, 
you could sign at third, fourth, and fifth year. With the other league. With the other league. And your intent was to step out of this league and step to the other. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But for them to know that, you know, I knew that because we had just signed and that, the size of that contract was going to blow up, blow up in the press in the next couple of days. So I called my offensive linemen and defensive players. I called everybody on the, I could get a hold of on the team and told them, here's what's coming. You need to know this, and you need to find out who your rights are with in the World Football League. Wow. And I'll help you do that if you need to. But this door is going to open, and it's going to stay open as long as that World Football League is there, but you don't know how long it's going to be there. So you need to capitalize because teams like, well, this, all the teams in the NFL, we're going to have to start signing their players to longer-term contracts to protect the rights so they don't step away. So whoever takes advantage of that first gets it. So I called my teammates and told them. When you hung up the phone with him, Larry, what was your next phone call? No, uh, <laughs> he called me. I said, take me with you. <laughs> you know? Exactly what I said. Take me with you. I would have if I could have. <laughs> but you know what, though? Out of that, Joe Robbie did. And Joe Robbie was tight. Everybody knows Joe well Robbie documented. was tight. Joe Robbie renegotiated. Because Zonk and Kick and I, I believe it was that we came off of, we all three of us came off of a three-year, uh, 150000 155000 I can't remember what it was. But we were averaging about fifty two, fifty three thousand a year. Uh, and then these guys went to the World Football League in then 74. We only signed that contract in 73. And Joe Robbie, who would never renegotiate anybody's contracts, he renegotiated two contracts, Larry Little's contract and my contract. And I went from – Larry became man. the first $100,000 lineman in league's history. And I went from three years, 155000 to five years, 675000 and uh, I became the second highest player on the team. Greasy was making 190000 at that at that particular time. And then when I got traded to San Diego, I was the highest paid player on the team mm. at one hundred thirty-five. And Dan Fouts was there. Oh, wow. And, and I remember Tommy Prothro talking about how I wasn't really worth the $135,000. You know, and I looked at his contract and looked at his play. I said, you have to consider whether or not you were worth whatever it is. You were <laughs> right, getting, right. You worry know, about your own deal here, buddy. Next season will be the first. <laughs> but Zonk did that, – that, that, that move that, that, that Paul and Jim and Larry did made, that did – that changed the, the the dynamic as far as Miami was concerned. As Larry, I can't speak for any other teams, but but for Larry and I, it, it changed that because Joe Robbie would never even consider reading it. But then he said, "Mercury, as long as you're in Miami, you'll always have a job." Then two years later, I, I'm in San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like I love talking about Miami and you know you guys down here and the, the advantage you guys had you know in the Orange Bowl. First of all, you you you. Touched on a little bit that heat in the Orange Bowl, the atmosphere in the Orange Bowl, the fans in the Orange Bowl. I played there in college, and I didn't get a chance to play there as a, as a Miami Dolphin. But just talk about that whole atmosphere in general. I mean, I know you guys are already used to the heat because you were, you know, you've been down here and you used it to your advantage. But talk about that atmosphere, how loud that place was, and you know how other teams just come and melt, you know, to not just the, the the heat, but to the atmosphere and the surroundings there. I think our fans uh, gave us an edge quite frankly, because the close proximity of the field to the fans in the Orange Bowl, I think, is documented. Everybody played in there knows knows that. And I don't think that the fans had been utilized as a weapon in the NFL. I remember sneaking into the 
a water, or Lakefront Stadium in Cleveland when I was about 10 years old to watch Jimmy Brown run the ball. And the fans were there, but they were really just fans. And they, some would cheer, but it wasn't a unified type thing. When we started the Dolphin, when, when the Dolphins started to turn around with the addition of Shula in 70, and fan base started to really grow rapidly, and all of a sudden the Orange Bowl was not, you know, every other seat, if you were lucky. It started to turn into a packed house. There was a situation that occurred because when we would go play the game there, we would report to the stadium early, you know, several hours before game time. But we were given parking passes that were all intermittent out through the parking lot. We didn't have any sequestered place or we didn't have any special bus that we arrived on. And there was, we were just amongst the people, all right? One day you'd park, you'd get a permit to park in parking lot B, the next time it was D or double D, whatever it was. So after the game, pretty soon the fans learned, when Shula got here, we started to win a little bit, more and more fans came, they started to learn where we were in the parking lot, who was driving what. And we started having people waiting out there for us to come out after the game. And they started bringing the the barbecues out and, and, that's tailgating. Where, where the whole tailgating thing started right there. <laughs> and then they started to work together as a chant. When they realized what kind of noise they could make at the closed end of the of the Orange Bowl, you know, you could literally get down there. This is back when, when there was no communication between the offensive coordinator and the quarterback on the field. You had to depend on the quarterback's memory. And he's trying to convey that to 11 or 10 other people out there in a situation where he's surrounded on three sides by people that are literally almost to the edge of the field you couldn't hear your yourself think down there not alone speak to each other communicate and that started to be utilized as a weapon it almost came about accidentally when they started to holler so much and stomp and, and then the white hankies. The white hankies, yeah. Forget about the white hankies, man. You look up in the stand, look like it's snowing. That, that all escalated into the fans becoming part of the game, a yep. working factor of the game. And that year when we played, I think it was the 49ers, uh, they, they, were, they were really, well, yeah. uh, you know, pretty high-ranked team. And they just, we decimated them between the heat and the fans and the noise and being able to, not able to communicate. We took them apart in the second half. Yes. And that's when we walked out of there, and that's when the fans and the Dolphins started a special unity that was mirrored by places, you know. Right. Talk about what happens in New York and different places. Pittsburgh, for instance. Uh, they, they started to follow that style. They picked up on it. Having been down to the Orange Bowl and suffered through it, they started, you started to see that kind of thing develop at other stadiums. Yeah, and also we would go out after the game in the parking lot with the fans drinking beer with the right, fans. Right, so after Sometimes the game. till 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and the Miami police used to come in and park and sit down and have a beer with us. So, I mean, they sat in the Right, yeah, right, of course, right, right. They, they would come in and say, you guys got to get out of here pretty soon. I said, sit down, man, put your feet up. You know? <laughs> oh, and man. That, you talk about a – that's why when we went to the undefeated season and we were coming back from those as it got into the season – you know, past the halfway point, we started having twenty or thirty thousand people show up on a regular basis for away game returns. When we were coming back from away game, they'd show up at the airport waving those hankies and be solid inside wow, the airport. Finally, atmosphere. they had to move us yeah. to a different hangar, move us away from the main airport because it was clogging the air, main airport. Man, what an atmosphere! Yeah, that's how crazy and enthusiastic our fans got. Man, that's awesome. You talk about like, and, and you know, and Shula coming in seventy. You know, a lot of people obviously talk about the 72 team, but I've understood that the loss in the Super Bowl in the 71 was really a 
big moment for all you guys as well as a team. Kind of galvanized you guys a lot because I know Shula talked about you, you never want to have this, this feeling again. What, what was Shula's message after the loss in the Super Bowl and that led on to the next two Super Bowls you guys won? Well, all I can tell you is that everything happened so fast. 69 were doormats. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, one of uh, George Wilson's first talks uh, to us as a team. He was smoking a cigarette, and he says, well, if we get a few breaks, and then we all bounce so away, we might come out on top, okay? Now we go from that to Shula being in the middle of it, making sure that in the meeting that we had before we got to the stadium, he'd give us the first three plays. So you get the first three plays, so regardless of what's happening on the universe, you better get these first three plays right. So there was a kind of tactic that he had that allowed us to play in a way in which we just simply executed what we were supposed to do after practice because it was was nothing fun about it. If you see pictures of Zonk and Lair, I mean, Jim and I, and we, uh, there's never any of us laughing because it was never <laughs> anything funny because we were at work. And, and I think that that atmosphere that they created there, that Don created, it was one that the fans, they connected to, because they saw that, that, that they had come from a losing team to an absolute winning team. So we go from doormats to 1971, we go in the playoffs. In 1972, we lose in the Super Bowl. And then when we came back, he, he, he pretended like he was glad to see us. And everything was, like, well, hey, good to see you guys, you know. And so then we sit down and we start watching film of the Super Bowl. And he started critiquing like we had lost the game the day before. Wow. He started the season with the Super Bowl film from the previous yes. year. Wow. And then and then he's reaming us out as if these these things happened 24 hours ago, <laughs> not six months ago. You guys are ready to move forward. And so now he's – and so everybody's kind of half stunned. He turns the projector off and he gets, stands up and he says, Now, you see how sick you feel now? You see how sick he's from Ohio. He can't like he can't say sorry. He says sorry. You see how sick and sorry you feel now. Well, just think of how sick and sorry you're going to be if you don't go back and redeem yourselves for what you did last year. And he said, but I forgot to tell you, it was just as much my fault because you can't be world's champions unless you win all three seasons: the regular season, the playoff season, and if you're good enough, your season boils down to one game, and that's the game you got to win. Now, we're going to walk out of here as coaches. You better find a way to get done what you need to get done in order to get back there to win that game. And we were stunned, but we dedicated ourselves to a man that we would take practice and we would employ the game plan in the classroom and then take that and translate that out into practice because he had we had we were brought up from out of the George Wilson league to into the Don Shula league where in summer camp we would run every play to the right that we had the first team and then the second team would run every play to the left and then we come back and run every play to the left the first team then we'd go in and watch it and, and then so he'd point out your mistakes there so it was always about mistake free football knowing what you're doing the whole time and taking it serious what you're supposed to do so we set out not not to go unbeaten we set out each week to take that game plan and replicate that in what we did on on sunday so it didn't matter who we played it only mattered how we executed and when you look back now you can see that that was the fruition of our success because we did things the way we were supposed to. So we go through the year, 
and we win 16 straight games, and they make us dogs in the Super Bowl. They said, oh, they can't win 17 games. We didn't have to win 17. We only had to win one. one, And that was the one that we lined up to do. And people can't see that because their vision of us is the greatness of going unbeaten, whereas ours was the redemption from getting your ass kicked the year before. Now you're back to the one game, so we just happen to go unbeaten to that back to that spot. So people now think it, that well, that's a that's the great thing if they pass us. You can't pass us. Well, it's a team that'll equal your record. You can't equal that. It's an accomplishment. It cannot be duplicated. You know how many times you can hit your first home run once, mm-hmm. and so it's already been hit out of the park. So it doesn't matter how far you hit it this time. I think the groundwork for the perfect season was laid at what Merck just alluded to was coming off that loss and that meeting when Shula first stood in front of us and said remember that feeling that we had and we reviewed that that film and went over it just like it would happen the day before just exactly like Merck said but then he stood before us and he said our objective this year and I know a lot of people in that room don't remember this I remember it vividly because I knew after being through that first uh, first two years with him what he was capable of as a head coach. And I thought when he said the next few words, he said, he looked right at us and said, our objective this year is to go one game at a time and win every game. Every game will be the Super Bowl. Now, when he said that, having been what we had been through for two years, which I had never seen anything, you know, take Marine boot camp times 10 <laughs> and spread it out over two years. Now you got it. I looked at Jim Kick, and Jim Kick goes, oh, this is going to be a beauty. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I said that later. Bob, several people said there was no thing, no talk about, you know, a perfect season. No, no one looked, viewed the season as a whole. What he said was, each game we're going to practice being perfect on each game so that when by the time we get to the Super Bowl his intent of that statement was to show how serious we were on each game in order to get to Super Bowl were we going to win every he didn't say we were going to win every game he said we were going to take it like each game was a Super Bowl we're going to get so instated in that in that engrossment in what we're doing that by the time we get there it'll be automatic for us and you know what it was Outside of one mistake, Garo, you premium. Fall on the ball, Garo. <laughs> no. Another you know. thing, too, uh, you can imagine what he had been through. He had the reputation at the time of not being able to win, win the, the big, big game. game. Yeah. So we could feel the way he was feeling. He had never won. He had lost, especially that devastating loss when he was with the Colts against the New York Jets. And, and then with us losing to the Cowboys the year before, we could almost – feel what he was feeling because they were they were going to be saying now the Miami Dolphins couldn't win the big game and we went out and won that game except for what he said about Garo it still would have been the only shutout in Super Bowl, Super Bowl history. history yeah we didn't score a touchdown we were the only team that, at that time that never scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl game we lost 24 to 3 so all of these factors that were brought in and put in our face that it made it so that we understood from a practice standpoint, what our job was. So at the end, when we're made underdogs, and that that meant nothing because we already had our task in mind. Our job was to get back to that game and then win that game. But just as karma would have it, 
How many times did we win the coin toss that year? I think we went 16 out of 17 said, times. From what said, the only time he didn't win it is when I called for it. That's right. <laughs> yep. Put it on you. He called heads every time. And then one day, Chicken goes, hey, hey, I want to call it this time. <laughs> so we're like, we're, we, so if not, we go 16-0 and 0 and, the and then, in the coin toss, 16-1 and 1 in the coin toss. If Larry doesn't do it, we go 17-0 in the coin toss. <laughs> wow. If Garrow doesn't shank that ball and then try to throw it and he hits it, we go 17-0. and 0. We, go, we win 17 nothing, and we go 17-0. and 0. So that's the possible karma that existed at that time. But out of it, the best one is the 17-0. Yeah, there's no by, question. By far, it was the best one. But I think that we talk a lot about the offense. We even talk about Garrow. But the defensive unit. Oh, yeah. There's an old saying in the NFL, you know, you, you can win games with your offense, but you win championships with your defense. Yeah. Our defensive unit under Bill Arnsberger was probably not the toughest defense in the in the in the history of the nfl but i will say this it was the smartest defense in the history of the nfl we made like six major errors in an entire season entire season there's teams out there today that make six major errors in a half half. (laughs) think about that and think about the iq think about recently i I saw joe namath a few months ago at the hall of fame thing we were talking and he said in front of me he didn't even know i walked up behind him but he was saying they asked him what was the toughest defensive unit you ever played against or one of the toughest that you you know tell us about those and he said hey the Miami Dolphins defensive unit, he said, was the smartest one. He said, I could never figure them out. Whatever yeah. I thought I had them figured out, it turned out I didn't. And you look at the IQ of the players on that team. You know, offenses will win you a game here and there quickly. You know, you get a wide receiver and a quarterback, they're hitting it, or a guy that's got tra- capable speed can take off and get these touches on, bring it from behind, win it. But to win championships, you've got to have a defense. And that defense was so good, so smart that it made being off when I mean, we could go out and get ball control and grind it down and burn up four or five or six minutes our defensive unit was so tickled they'd get up and, and applaud us when we came off the field <laughs> <laughs> like i said we won a few games with the offense but championships were won by the defense yeah. and we had one of the smartest ones that was ever it might not be the biggest might might be the toughest i don't know but i think that defense was the smartest one that was in the hundred year hundred year history of the nfl I got to believe that was the smartest defense that was ever. Man for man, that was the smartest defense that's ever on the field. You know, they said that uh, I saw a piece with Joe Namath uh, talking about Super Bowl Seven, and uh, the, now, this is what he said now. He said, man, I'll tell you right now. He's from Beaver Falls, PA, right? <laughs> he said, man, I'll tell you right now, man, these guys are the two best uh, the safeties in the league, uh, Jake Scott and Dick Anderson. They get you back there. They put to show you those phony coverages. <laughs> that's awesome. They <laughs> make you think there's going to be one thing they had that's in so much trouble i didn't know what to do <laughs> that's great that's Namath. <laughs> that is great so i have a question for you guys uh, and you know obviously we spent a lot of time talking about the 72 team for for all the reasons that that we should be but oj's asked this question uh, of a few different guys who've been in the tank and there's there's talk that perhaps your team the following year clearly undefeated you know never been duplicated but that that 73 team might have been a better team than the 72 team you know what better is not relative the team itself what kind of a team was it because it's 73 the the comparison one was because in 72 we had an agenda 
that was based upon something else. Mm. But we had grown there, and I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, Zong, but Shula then came back and said, the only way you're going to basically, the only way you're going to like prove legitimacy from the 72 is to go back and win it again. It again. And, uh, and I remember that uh, that, that team, uh, we, we had, I've seen five touchdown passes thrown uh, in games multiple times this year already. That 73 team had five touchdown passes scored against it the whole year. It's now, crazy. you think about that. I remember we played a Buffalo up in Buffalo, and we were beating them, and they kept handing the ball off the juice. And Manny and Anderson and Monacani, they were getting pissed because they weren't trying to win the game. They were trying to get juice yards. And now this think of a team that's complaining to another team, hey, quit trying to get this guy yards and try to beat us. We're out here. We want competition. We don't want you trying to do this. Wild. Yeah, absolutely wild. I think the reason a lot of people say that is because we dominated more games that year than we did in 1972. We played a lot of close games in 1972. In 1973, we just dominated teams. I mean, 20 points, 30 points here and there. But both teams are great. It's hard to say one team was greater than the other because right. we did lose two games. Right. Uh, the second game, we played lost the second game of the season. Right. Against the Oakland Raiders out in Berkeley, Third, California. Yeah, the second game, yeah. And uh, they beat us 12-6. The offense didn't do anything that day. No. <laughs> And uh, that's because Al Davis, Larry's leaning in, watered down the damn field and had us playing in that new sod. He knew how to. No, we were in Berkeley. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. In Berkeley, I know, but I'm talking about that's that sod was so was so bad. Well, for Lyman, we didn't pay no attention to that. Uh, I did. (laughs) I got trapped right there uh, a couple times. But you know, it was, and they actually they won the Super Bowl that game. Yeah. Then we went on a winning streak, won ten straight games after that, and then we lost to Baltimore. Shoes and, uh, gave Howard that game. That was a Snellenberg was the head coach right. at Baltimore at the time. <laughs> get Did him a solid. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Ropes. So, so I have, to, and we're going to get you guys out of here. You guys have been more than generous with your time, but I have two quick things I wanted to ask you. One, Merck. So I read Always on the Run. Uh-huh. I got a copy of the book actually sitting in my car. I didn't know you were going to be here. Mm. In the book, you talk about burying a voodoo doll. Oh, no, you mean, you mean my book, Against the Grain? Against the Grain, always I'm sorry, always on the run, book. I'm sorry, I apologize. I, well, I read both of them, uh-huh. I apologize for the confusion, but oh, I have, yeah, Against the Grain, that you buried a voodoo doll, and said the Dolphins will not win a Super Bowl again until it's dug up. And you know what they have? We need to go find this damn thing. Where, where, oh, where's geez. this voodoo doll? You know, that, that occurred when uh, <laughs> this guy I went to see over on 54th Street, he was Can one I write of those the address guys, guys, and uh, he did something where he showed me how he took a bird and put this bird and and put these roots over by this guy's place and said, "Watch, I'm gonna make this guy. I'll make him move out of town." So he takes this bird, he puts it over there, and something happens. And then two days later, the guy moved up, moved out of town. <laughs> Wait a minute! So I said, "Wow, Wait a minute. this is like it." So I this said, guy's legit." So now we're we're at the last game of the year, and I I had hurt my knee. Uh, in in 74 and I didn't really didn't play I'd gotten a whole bunch of trouble I got kicked off the team uh, well I walked out on Shula one day and then he sent me a telegram telegram now it says you're fired the next day so I had to go back and eat some cheese and go back up with him (laughs) he called me uh, yeah well yeah but he he called me 
he, he called Larry and told him to come back to my house. But that's because <laughs> I went on Joe Krogan's show the night but after he sent me the telegram, and he said it's going to cost you nine grand, a game check. So I went back. I said, well, you know, Don and I have had these problems, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm frustrated because I can't contribute. My knee's messed up, and that's really kind of how I felt about it, and I got upset, and I'm sorry I really did that. So then he get, calls Larry and tells him to come back, tells me to come back up to the camp. So I come back up to the camp. We have this little press conference. He said, well, I saw Merck last night, and since he realized it's wrong, said he was sorry and made his he made mistake. I go, wait a minute, I didn't say all that. And he says, well, yeah, then that's so I brought him back. Okay, that's it now. So then we go all the way through the end of the season. I can't play. Uh, I'm, I'm like hurt. He's, he, at the end, he says, I want you to run back uh, kickoffs. And I go, kickoffs? I said, I can't go. He says, well, the doctor said you're all right. I said, look at this knee. Does this look all right to you? And so then he just hopped away. So then I told this friend of mine, he said, man, you better go see the root man. So I went over to North 54th Street, and I said, Shula's trying to kill me. And he goes, that's right, I know. I said, what do I got to do? I, I got it for you. Here, I want, I'm going to give you these roots. And then, and then he gave me this, this. And this is true, man. True story. You know, I'm gonna he have, gave me the roots. Uh, you know, he I got, had 100 <laughs> letters from nuns over the years because of a finger on the front of Sports Illustrated. <laughs> what you're about to say, I'm going to get 100 more letters from those same nuns. <laughs> hey, but the outcome, this is what happened. It's a true story. He, we go out, and I tell three people on the team that I that what I've done. So I, I had to go out and I had to get a shoot, make a Shula doll, and then I had to make the Shula doll and then put him in a box and then put the bury the box in my backyard and then I had to these roots I had to chew and then I had to take the the this pe- this paper that he gave me and burn it over the box. And then and you went uh, through this whole process. I, I went through the whole process, and then in my I think, I think you listen could be me, president in my in my shoe, I had a, a spider web, Witch doctor. a spider web, a spider web on the written on a piece of paper in my shoe, and across the spider web was the word written confused. All right, so now I had to wear that and chew the roots as I'm out on the field. So now this, it's, it's, in, it's in it's it's in it's in the Zonk is walking off. He's heard enough. It's in the it's, Zonk, I'm telling you, this is true. I go out and, uh, and and Shula Shula's going nuts on the sideline. He's already he's already thinking because Zonk was saying it the day before. He's going, hey, the old man's going crazy. He's looking up in the stands. He thinks he sees a somebody up there with a camera, and a plane flies over, and he starts saying, "Mill around, mill around." So I don't see what kind of offense there is. And Zonk goes, "I think the old man's going nuts." And so the next day, and you're thinking it's working. Uh, uh, no, not then. Okay, Al Davis then is watering down the field, and it was raining. And he's got the sprinklers on so we can only practice on one half of the field. And Shula was paranoid about, about the Oakland Raiders because he traded Jimmy Warren. He cut Jimmy Warren the last cut of the year. Jimmy Warren was a starting corner in 1970. And Al Davis picked him up in 1970. And in 1974, Jimmy Warren was still going down on kickoffs for the Oakland Raiders because mm. he went out there and told them every single thing we knew. Now, our record against Oakland during our championship years – was two and three. We lost three out of five games that we played against them, including two playoff games. 
So w- when we go out in the field, now I'm not playing, but I got this spider web in my <laughs> you got shoe the spider web. with the word confused written across it. So now all this chaos is going on in the field, and they got the, the Oakland Raiders are out there. They're, they're, they're doing it to us. Ted Hendricks uh, is, can't be stopped, and so he sends in Nat Moore to help uh, with Ted, uh, uh, with Norm Evans, to help block him. So they're on the other hash mark. Ted walks all the way over to the sideline where we are with Shul, and he goes, Hey, you freaking kidding me? So so he walks just around to the other side and rushes in and gets him. So there's this mayhem going on. And Lloyd Mumford, when they get on a kickoff, Lloyd slips down, and Jimmy Warren falls on him. So Lloyd's like on a a turtle. He's like can't get up, and he pushes him off, and then he comes to the sideline, and uh, and (laughs) Shula goes, you let Jimmy Warren hold you down? And Lloyd said, man, F you. And so he walked away. And so now Foley's hurt. So he can't play. So he sticks this guy named Henry Stuckey in, who couldn't cover a bridge if it was drawn on a piece of paper oh, with, a, with a towel. Hey, he, he sticks damn. him in, and, and Branch immediately starts running away with this guy. So Foley goes, what, what's, what, Lloyd, how come you're not in the game? He said, hey, because Don got mad at me. I told him to go F himself. And so, so Foley then goes to Vince Costello who was the offensive coordinator at that time. Defense. And he t- defense coordinator at that time, I mean. And so he says... Thank oh, you, Larry. <laughs> he loves to be able to do that right there. <laughs> That's twice in 35 years. <laughs> so, so, he, so Foley goes to Vince and, and goes, says, you need to get Lloyd back in this game. And so he goes up to Shula, and he comes to Shula, and he says... Well, coach, you want Lloyd back in the game? He says, no, I don't want him there. He says, but he needs me. He says, because that's the way I want it. And so then Costello comes back to Lloyd and Foley and says, well, you got to sit because he's a little confused right now. Uh Uh-oh. And that's when I knew right there. The root man. The root man. Now, keep in mind (laughs) how we lost that game called the Sea of Hands. Yeah. Where our players knocked each other's hands off the ball, which is how this guy caught it against us. Two two defensive players we got there. We they knock each other's hands off the ball and we lose the game. Now at first I told Wayne Moore and I told Chicken and I told somebody else Lloyd. And so Wayne and now we go in, Shula's crying, my dream is gone. Cooch and Langer are crying. We have this done. And Wayne Moore comes up to me and he said, Damn, baby, you should have waited till next week so we could have got us another check. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, true story. So and it's still back there. It's still back and there. They never gained and I moved. So twenty five years ago, so like, do we know who lives end, there? That ended up. The we gotta fate. go knock on somebody's Somewhere door, Mark. Back there is it's too late. He's gone now. Don's gone, but it never happened again. It never happened. And when Man. I got traded, and I told him, I said, "You'll do no better wherever, wherever you, you're sending me." And that year, Shula suffered. I told you it was six and eight. And that year, Shula had his first losing season, and his record was six and eight. The yeah. root man. I'm a little. I'm. A, I'm not quite as freaked out hey, as Zon because Zon left the room. Neighborhood. But uh, but I have, <laughs> hey, hey guys, I just got to say it has been beyond an honor to have the three of you in here together. It has been spectacular. We greatly appreciate the generosity of your time and just all the wonderful memories you've given us and all the Dolphin fans. Hey, thank you. I enjoyed. Great. Thanks Great. for diving in, fellas. We appreciate it. You're now diving into the fish tank. 
Came down with Seth living. Seth. OJ, Ju Juice Woo. Man, ooh, and this is strictly for them true fans, yeah. dog fans. Number one, one. of course, y'all. This ain't no ordinary sports talk. Dive up in that fish tank. Go get your aqua orange. Yeah, it's time to dive up in that fish tank. It's only legendary talking when you dive up in that fish tank. Rockin' with OJ and Seth when we dive up in that fish tank. Uh, uh, fans with attitude, we okay, better dive up for in them that fish tank. Celebrate big or cry hard. Leave it all on the field, we gon' try hard. Old school, a new school, mix it in. Feeling like we up close when we listening. Dolphins tales in Miami is the deep end. We vibing with our favorite players, no secret. We get with Seth and McDuffie, bringing up stories we never heard to the public. Bet we love it. Dolphins fans never budget. We loyal to the team, whether happy or we upset. We be like, what's next? Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about the fans. And if you ready for that water, time to dive in. Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about them fans. And if you down with Dolphins Nation, time to dive in. Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about them fans. You looking at that fish tank, it's time to dive in. Fish tank. Go get your aqua orange. Yeah, it's time to dive up in that fish tank. It's only legendary talking when you dive up in that fish tank. Rapping with OJ and Seth when you dive up in that fish tank.